Judge Alexander M. Sanders, back in the 90s, had the privilege of speaking at a graduation that happened to be his daughter's graduation ceremony. And I don't think he warned her, but he um, decided to tell a story about his graduating daughter uh, when she was three years old. And the story goes that when she was three years old, that her turtle died. So uh, mom wasn't quite sure what to do, so she did the, the right thing. She nudged her husband to go try to fix this. And so he did what a lot of us dads would try to do. I've shared this at this pulpit before that I, like, I recommend, like, hey, you know, replace the turtle, right? That always sounds like a good idea. Well, the, the little bawling little Zoe, she was not going to have a new turtle. It wasn't going to happen. She wanted her old turtle back, and she was committed to it. So she's bawling. Dad's trying to comfort her. Can you picture this? You know, that dad's trying to help her to feel a little better. She's recognizing the imminent death of her or the death of her little turtle. And so dad decides that he's going to encourage her. And he says, honey, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to throw a little funeral for your turtle. All right. So we'll invite the neighbors. We'll throw a party. We'll have cake and ice cream. And Zoe's eyes start to light up. She likes the sound of this and she's excited. So now she's ready to throw a party, right? And out of the corner of her eye, she notices that the turtle comes alive, right? And so Zoe now has a dilemma, and she looks over at her dad, and she says, Dad, I say we kill it. <laughs> you, know, you know, that moment, she was thinking about ice cream, right? She was thinking about her party. And this morning, as we go back into God's word, uh, there was a group of people, and this was a historical event that happened where there was a group of people that their party was so serious. In, in this context, the, the Jewish leadership that was in Jerusalem were so serious about protecting the establishment that they had had, that they were going to be willing to put to death a man who threatened that establishment. We know this man as Stephen. His name in Greek literally means the garland, the victory garland that a person received at the end of the race. And we know him after Christ as the first man to have given his life for the, his namesake, for the, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he's going to die for his faith. And those individuals that are going to come, we're going to see this progression that happens at the end of chapter six into chapter seven, where he really just ticks them off. And they, they get so frustrated because they want to be in control and they actually really want things to stay the way that they were before. They want to maintain the status quo. And Stephen and the other disciples, they represent change that they don't want to do. In fact, they're going to take this so seriously that we're going to see tragically that they bludgeon this man to death. And it's a horrible story. But what I want you to catch this morning, if you study this together with me, is that I want you to catch that for Stephen, even though it was a tragedy, that he was a man who responded to the courage, with courage under fire. He was a person who responded with a recognition that as we hear the voice of this first martyr, we're going to see him be a man who recognized something that I think if you embrace this, this can change your life. I've heard this probably 10 times from people that I respect that we're in the valley of the shadow of death, that there are people who are anticipating their own death. They were minutes away from dying or months away from dying, had gotten a, a terrible prognosis or diagnosis. And they, they have said these words. And I'm amazed how I've heard them from people who could look in the face of death and say a statement like this, God is going to heal me in this life or he's going to heal me in the next. 
And Stephen, as he approached this time period, I believe he had placed himself, his life, his future days, all of the days of the rest of his life into the hands of a God that loved him. And he's going to look at them and he's going to be really honest about what's going on. And you're going to catch, if you notice this this morning, you're going to catch right at the end that it ends with this message of grace, a message of grace for all of us. One that I hope you're encouraged by because even in the midst of being bludgeoned to death, he's going to say a message like the Lord Jesus Christ, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. I hope you have your Bibles, turn them on and join me in the book of Acts chapter six as we've been going through this series that's focusing in on the unstoppable work of God that you can't get in the way of what he's doing. You can try. And, and these religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders of the day are gonna try to get in the way of the movement of God and it's not gonna go very well for them. I believe Stephen understood that the truth of God will set him free in this life or the next. And here he's gonna stand before them in Acts chapter six, beginning in verse eight. And we're gonna get this glimpse into who he is. He, he's a very gifted man. The, the voice of the martyr shines through this man who was an imperfect man, but a man who was given a calling by God. And I think every one of us in this room have been given to some level. He'd been gifted. It says this in verse eight, and Stephen, which fittingly means the victor's crown, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. So these people who want to silence Stephen, they, they have to put up with the fact that God's working through him. There's miracles that are happening that could not have happened unless God was involved. And then later in verse 10, this same Stephen is described as being a man full of great wisdom, and he was filled with the Spirit. So here we see that Stephen was equipped by God to do great things. I think you and I were gifted by God to do great things. I think Stephen was a man who submitted to God's leadership in his life. He obeyed the calling of God in his life. And, and he did something. I attended a funeral yesterday. It was one of the best funerals I've ever been to. It sounds weird to say a good funeral. But what the statement that came out over and over again is that this woman, Linda Sue Hall, she was a woman who was incandescent with her life. I love that statement. She had an incandescent personality. And what they were saying was she was a person that radiated light in her life. One of the things that we have the privilege of knowing scientifically is that the moon is not just making its own light, but obviously it's reflecting the light of the sun. And this woman, in her life, she'd spent her lifetime radiating the light of Christ. Now, now I don't know about you, but, but I have had many an experience where my eyes had adjusted to the darkness, and then somebody flips the lights on. And what happens when you go from darkness to light, right? It hurts, doesn't it? And in fact, that's what happens here, is that, is that Stephen is going to radiate the light of Christ, the joy of Christ, in such a way that they're going to want to do everything they can to silence it, but it's not going to work out for them to silence it, even through attempting to murder him, to put him to death. His message is going to continue on. So here we see the first point this morning, and that is the truth of the gospel. Literally, the good news could be pretty provocative in the world that we live in. It's it's hard message. It's a, a message that says that there is one way to, to Christ. There's one way to salvation. It's, it's exclusive. It's offensive. It requires understanding the bad news. And for some, that's something that's tremendously hard to accept. 
But here, here these individuals are going to accuse Stephen in the text of multiple things. They're going to accuse him of ignoring his Jewish heritage and their love for the land, their love for the law that had been given to them, and their love for the temple. And he's going to accuse them of this in such a way that, or they're going to accuse him of this in such a way that they're going to assume that he doesn't quite understand how essential these things are. And Stephen, in his response, in his defense, is going to say back to them some powerful truths that are going to remind them of the fact that, that God not only was a part of those things, but now that he's a part of what's happening in the church going forward. Verse 9 says it like this. It says, then some of those who belong to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, I want to pause there for a quick second. They estimate that in Jerusalem at this time, there were between 380 and 480 synagogues. So you think about like First Baptist Church, right? Second Baptist Church. There, there were 380 synagogues that you could choose from in Jerusalem alone. Now, we think we have a lot of churches in our area. Can you imagine how many synagogues there were? And now, this one is one that was identified as, um, as one that in particular was frustrated with Stephen. It says, then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen and the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia, they rose up and they disputed with Stephen. Verse 10, but they could not withstand the wisdom in the spirit which he was speaking. We know that that spirit is the indwelling presence of God. He's super wise. He's powerful. But this whole, they could not withstand it. You know what that means? It means they, like, literally, they, they snapped, right? They couldn't take it anymore. They, they were so upset with him. And this is what it says. They secretly instigated men who said, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon him. They seized him. They brought him before the council. Now, this council was the very council that condemned Jesus to death. Verse 13, and they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against the holy place and the law. For we've heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will, will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. You know, what's interesting is that some of these accusations we're told in the text were fabricated. They just made them up, false accusations. But for some of them, there are the actual implications of what was happening in the world. What God was doing was that he was fulfilling his promises to his people, and he was moving from the Old Testament covenant into a new covenant that was bought with the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they were thinking about the implications of this. We don't want this change to take place. They, they resisted this change that was inevitable. Do you remember when Jesus died that the temple curtain, the dividing wall between man and God was, was rendered in two? And what they want to do, I always think of it as so silly, that they, they want to sew that thing back up again. They want to keep these, they want to keep the old traditions. They want to keep going back to something that God had set them free from. The old covenant in the book of Hebrews, we're taught as transitions into this new covenant. There's a beautiful gift for believers, but for some, they wanted to reject it. And so here they stand in the way of this, verse 15, and it says that, that Stephen, gazing at him and gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Uh, I used that word earlier, incandescent. Have you guys noticed that people are just a little on edge today? Have you noticed that? You notice it on the road when you drive. 
I've realized that I can't drive fast enough or slow enough for people behind me. Have you noticed in restaurants or in stores that people are uptight, angry? Have you, have you seen, I'm the only person. Um, you know, Allie and I have talked about this lately. Like, have you noticed when you're kind in the midst of that, how people respond to it? Actually, people take it really well because we're on edge right now. We're, some of us were discouraged, frustrated, stuck at home. It's been painful and discouraging. You know what I love about Stephen? He's just this little example to me. Is that here, Stephen is a man who's about to be put to death. And what he does is he radiates with something that they, they couldn't ignore. I think of Moses at the point when he had encountered God and, and afterwards that he had this glow about him. We, we love to quote the passage that says, God, let your light, your face shine down upon us. And even at the transfiguration that Jesus comes out, he's just glowing. Now, I have to guess that what they wanted from him was for Stephen to just shut up, be quiet, get in your corner, get in your place, buddy. And instead, what he did was he responded with a joy that was radiating about him. They didn't know what to do with it. They, they couldn't handle it. And I'm going to guess for us as Christ followers in a time like this where things are difficult, discouraging, frustrating, if you are a person of joy, if you are a person that radiates God's love, it's going to stick out in the darkness that's around us. I pray that for our church family. You know, it's so encouraging to me that, that Stephen now is in a position where he's going to respond to these accusations. And he's going to do so incredibly well. But their accusations are, you are saying something that's a lie. And you would expect him to be someone who responds with his own defense. Like, how do I protect myself, get myself out of trouble? But instead, what Stephen does is he actually chooses to see this whole thing from the perspective of God. He understands that the truth is going to set him free. And this leads us to the second point this morning, and that is the truth can set us free in this life or the next. So here, Stephen in Acts chapter 7 weaves together this tremendous answer to those who are accusing him of ignoring the law, ignoring the land, not understanding how important it is. And I love the fact that, that it starts in verse 2 of chapter 7 with the God of glory. He keeps God at the center of this. And then it ends in verse 55 with the glory of God. Now, this picture that's on the screen is, is important because we had this example of Peter at the moment when others accused him. When, when Peter was on the crucible, when they said, aren't you associated with the Christ? And you remember what Peter did, right? He chose to disassociate himself with the Christ. In fact, what he chose to do was he chose to defend himself. I don't know that, man. I have no idea what you're talking about. What's Stephen do? Stephen ends up responding to them with one of the longer sermon or messages or defenses in Scripture. And in this defense, he takes them to task. He responds beautifully. His defense was not about his glory or his self-protection, but it was about God's glory. And you know what he does? He shows great respect for his Jewish heritage. He weaves together the story of the patriarchs of Israel, including Abraham, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, David, and Solomon. If you're unfamiliar with those names, I want to encourage you to check this out. These, these verses are profound. We don't have time to read all of them. But in Acts chapter 7, verses 1 through, through 38, what we see is, is he goes through this step-by-step -step reminder of their history 
And in the midst of their accusations, them pointing at him, declaring to him that he's a fraud, he ends up confronting their very emphasis on the land, the law, and the temple. On the land, it's great. His response back to the land is powerful. He basically says, Moses was blessed without having ever stepped into the promised land. When it comes to the law, he's going to argue that Jesus fulfilled the law as the Messiah. And in the temple, basically, he's going to quote Isaiah chapter 66, verses 1 and 2, where he's basically going to quote the fact that God does not dwell in temples that were built by man. So he responds back to them. And if you unpack this um, in, the, in verse chapter 7, verses 39 through 43, he reminds them of something that reminds me of myself, to be frank. And as he reminds them of the fact that God's blessed them so much as, as people, but in the midst of that process, they ch still chose to rebel against God's love. He reminds them of the experience of the golden calf, that they're blessed by God. God's literally giving them the law to Moses, and he's going to reject it outright. They're going to reject it, I'm sorry, as people. They're going to reject it outright by building a lesser God made out of gold that was no God at all. Then he teaches them in verses 44 through 50 that, that God does not choose to dwell in hands that were built by humans. So the temple emphasis was, was not appropriate for them at this point because of God's immensity, that he's bigger than that, that he reigns in heaven. And then he also weaves into this story their rebellion that was so common to God's people. He says this phrase, stiff-necked people. I want you to think about that. We use the phrase in Ohio, don't we? Rubberneckers, we say that. And that's the person who's driving down the road. Have you ever used this phrase before? Maybe my parents taught me this. But if you're driving down the road and you want to see the accident that's happened over here. But, but his statement about being a stiff-necked people is like you're, you're not budging. Like you're stuck. You're going you're gonna to stick to your ways. You're not going to learn. You're not going to change. And here, back in, in, um, in Acts, in verse 51, he says this to the people who've accused him. He says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in your heart. Your hearts are, are hard. They're fleshly. They, they aren't soft. In your ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. He's talking about John the Baptist there and others. Whom you have now betrayed and you've murdered. Verse 53. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. So he says, this is a gift from God. God delivered this truth to you and you, you ignored it. You didn't, you didn't do anything with this. And so then we finally see that Stephen is set free through his death. I think for some of us, when we think about the promises of God, when we think of that very painful uh, reality of death as he sits in the valley of the shadow of death, the first thought that comes to our mind is, is God's going to set us free. He's the healer. He can do this. And I've had the privilege, the, the pain of sitting in hospital rooms with individuals with very difficult diagnoses or I've been with people who, I was with a, with a friend, his name is Pastor Bob Chafee. We were at a, an event, a golf tournament, where um, he's a really strong guy, just super mentor in my life, and he uh, couldn't finish the, the 18 holes that we were trying to play, and what we found out later is that there was a tumor that had developed in his back, and it ultimately led to multiple tumors, and, and I remember when he stood in front of our church family, 
And, and you, you just wonder, like, how's a person going to respond to this? And he said a quote, I've quoted it here from, from other people. I've probably heard it a dozen times in my life. He said, he said, as he stood up, he said, I believe that God can heal. And then he went on to say, I know that God is going to heal me in this life or the next life. It's a great phrase, isn't it? And, and I think that God let him, you, you know, I love this phrase, graduate. Like God let him graduate home. Are we sad, the people who are left behind? Of course. Did we weep? Of course we did. Because death was never the plan. But at the same moment, what we do is we recognize that God did heal him in the next life. So here we get this glimpse into Stephen. Here he is going to, the phrase is interesting, he's going to end up graduating. But in order to do that, he's going to have to fall asleep in the process. Verse 54 says this. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged. These are his Jewish accusers. And they ground their teeth at him. Just picture their angst at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He gets this little glimpse. You know, elsewhere in scripture, like in Psalm 110, this description of Jesus in, in, the, in the holy, or in the temp, or in, in heaven is standing there. Uh, I mean, he's sitting often when it's described in scripture. So usually in Psalm 110, Jesus is normally referenced as sitting and here we see him standing. I love this image. The image is that as Stephen is about to give his life for Christ, that, that, God is, that God is looking down upon him and the Lord Jesus is looking down upon him and he's giving a standing ovation as he's about to come home. He, he's gonna be the first one to greet him. He's there to defend him before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And Stephen ultimately does graduate. He gives this last statement in verse 56. He says, and he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. But then those who are around him, they cried out with a loud voice. They stopped their ears. They didn't want to hear it anymore. They rushed together at him and then they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. This kind of death, this kind of murder was brutal. What they're going to do, they're going to bludgeon him to death. It's just horrifying to picture this. And here, as he's going through this, as the rocks are being thrown, you think of stoning as a way to kind of remove culpability for those. You don't know who actually did the death stroke, right? They're, they're all a part of this, and it's horrifying. And they knew how bloody this was going to be. It's, it's hard to be so graphic, but they knew how bloody this was going to be because the text tells us at the end of verse 58 that they took off their outer garments in order to keep them from getting soiled. You get that, that nasty image. Like they knew this was, this was grotesque, what they're about to do. And did you see in the text whose feet they laid these at? That they lay these garments at the feet of a man named Saul. They say a young man here. A young man named Saul who later on, after being a part of this from this, at this point, he's rejecting Christianity. He's not just adamantly against it, but he's condoning the violence and he's gonna be a part of the violence towards Christianity, that God's gonna use this man through his grace to be one of the greatest ambassadors for the gospel that's ever walked the earth. And I find such great encouragement in this, that, that, that at this point, the apostle Paul or Saul is just wrong. He's on the wrong side of this thing. That God had to take him on a journey to bring him to understanding the forgiveness of Christ. 
But here he's opposed. Here they're a part of this. They're throwing stones. You know what I love about God? I, I believe totally if God wanted to, if it was in his plan, that he could have chosen to turn those stones as they released from their hands right back on those who'd sent them. That he could have set him free. In fact, we know the apostle Paul later is going to survive a stoning. And we know that there's all kinds of things that God could have done. But instead, at this point, for his plan, what God chose to do was to allow this man, Stephen, to graduate to heaven. So, so hard to watch, but it's powerful to understand that Stephen knew exactly what was going on, that God's going to allow him to graduate. And as he does so, this is so incredible, that, that the very men who are in the act of, of brutally destroying his life, taking away the rest of the days of his life, in verse 59, these are the words that Stephen says, and as they were stoning him, Stephen called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, and falling to his knees. So can you picture, he's standing in defiance of this, this thing that's happening, and falling to his knees, he cries out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he had fallen asleep. That message is so beautiful. It reminds us of what Jesus said. Father, don't, don't hold these people's sins against them. That, that he's declaring a message of grace. I want to declare a message of grace this morning. If you've been on the wrong side of this, if you've been holding on to some of the reasons and excuses to want to try to keep things the way they were, uh, today's the day to let that go in your life. Today is the day for you to understand that God's grace is sufficient for you. His power is made perfect in our weakness. I love the simple statement that to live is Christ and to die is gain. Stephen embodied this right now. You know that a majority of the disciples who had taken up the call of Christ to follow him, to obey his call in their life, they would end up giving their lives for Christ as well that they, were, they sacrificed their futures because of the fact that the gospel was so real in their life. For some of us today, we need to recognize the fact that Stephen was the first of many, one of, of literally hundreds of thousands of individuals who are going to give their life for the sake of the gospel because it's worth it. God's worthy of us laying down our lives for the sake of the gospel. There should be nothing that keeps us silent about the gospel. Nothing should lead to that kind of fear. I, I think it's so encouraging for me to see that Stephen, in the midst of God taking him home, is also able to articulate a message of forgiveness, one that he himself had to receive, one that later the apostle Paul was going to receive as a persecutor of Christ, ultimately to be a messenger of Christ. That's many of our stories. And I just love this grace-filled ending to this. Lord, will you forgive them for what they're doing? I, I like to imagine that if I were a person who was asked to give, a, give up my faith under persecution, that I would be bold and stand up. I don't know how I would respond. But I'm so grateful for those who've gone before us. We've been tested through all of the stuff that's been happening in our country over the last three, three months or so. We've been tested in so many different ways. Our world has been tested. 
And I think when we spoke earlier about are we people who allow ourselves to just be beat down and to be discouraged, or are we people that actually continue to be transcendent, to continue to radiate light, to be people who who give the blessing of forgiveness to a world that desperately needs it? I don't know if that's your story right now, but I want to encourage you to, to follow in the footsteps of a man like Stephen. There's just one question that I want to ask you as we apply this truth to our lives today. And that is, what are you allowing to silence you? In Stephen's case, he let nothing get in the way of the message of hope that God had given him. He was a man who was filled with grace, even to his death. You remember how we started the cheesy illustration of the little girl and her turtle and that she didn't want to end her party, you know? I don't know if there's a party that you want to have that you're not willing to cancel right now. Maybe that's a sin that you're hanging on to. Maybe that's that you're not ready to embrace the grace that God has for you. But I want to just challenge you that, that, that that's something that leads to death, the kind of death that's separation from God. And that's not the thing that he's calling us to, but he's actually calling us to life. God, God hates death. Death was never the plan. But as he calls us to life, he gives us the promise of eternity with him. Uh, The the follow-up question to this is, have you lost your courage under fire? For some of us, we feel like we've been bludgeoned through this. We've had this constant, all right, what's next? Oh, there's another crisis, another tragedy. We're stuck. feel like we're left behind in some of this. And just want to remind you, the Lord has never forsaken you. He loves you. He's right here beside you. He's looking down upon you. And as you anticipate taking him at his word, that you don't have to fear death, that he promises us, regardless of the prognosis, that if we're Christ followers, if we've placed our faith and trust in him, that he's going to heal us in this life. Sometimes he does so miraculously, or he's going to heal us in the next life. And absent from the body, what's the great phrase? Absent from the body, present with the Lord. So that's my encouragement to you today. I'm going to ask you to join me in prayer and pray that uh, we ourselves would be people who would follow in the footsteps of the courageous leaders who've gone before us. Lord, we love you. And I just thank you and praise you that you have not forgotten those who have suffered for your namesake. I love that glimpse into the throne room of God that as you reign, as you're the King of kings and the Lord of lords, that, that you give us this glimpse of our defender, the Lord Jesus Christ, who paid the ultimate sacrifice so that we do not have to. I thank you for Stephen, the, the man whose name literally means the victory crown. I thank you that he gives us an example of a pursuit of your life, the kind of life that can only come from our knowledge of you. I I know for a fact that there's people who are in this room that have logged on online that are deeply discouraged today. And they have allowed the weight of the pain of their circumstances to define them. I just ask, Lord, through the power of your Holy Spirit, through the way that you can work, that you would alleviate that burden, just like a man who stood in the valley of the shadow of death and who still radiated joy. Would that be what it means for us to be a part of your family? 
Lord, we thank you for naming Hope Church, Hope Church, 11 years ago, that you gave us the call to be ambassadors of hope in our community. And I pray that we would be people who continue to do that, to radiate your light, to radiate your joy, and to follow in the footsteps of those who've gone before us where this faith of theirs was not just something for Sunday mornings, but that this faith of theirs was what defined their lives. We love you. We thank you for this. I pray that as we close our time out and worship, that you would be glorified. In Jesus, Jesus, precious and holy name we pray. Amen.